This is The Guardian. Today, dating scammers stole nearly £100 million from lonely single people in the UK last year. How did they do it? The first lockdown was horrendous, really. I didn't handle it very well. This is Keith Grinstead. He lives on his own in Suffolk. And I just stayed indoors in my flat and and just kept myself away from the world, really. And and I I sort of decided during that that time that there, there was absolutely no way that I wanted to endure another lockdown, if we had one, on my own. And I was determined to find somebody else to share my life with. So Keith started online dating, which was, of course, the only option anyone who was single had at that time to meet people. And he matched with an American woman called Tina, who lived in Essex with her young daughter. We just seemed to get on really, really well and, and be able to talk about pretty much anything. And, and it, was, it was a really enjoyable time and, and it, it seemed very, very promising and looked yeah, hopeful for the future for when the lockdown eventually finished and we'd, we'd actually be able to go and meet each other. They still hadn't met each other when, weeks into their relationship, she started asking Keith for money. She started telling me how little food they had in the house and she sent me photograph of an empty fridge. Another occasion, she sent me a photograph of her daughter squatting on the floor with a food bowl that had no food in it. And she tugged on my heartstrings, basically. Keith sent her a small amount of money and then suggested they meet up once restrictions lifted. Very soon after that, all of a sudden, she, she disappeared. Tina messaged again a week later. She said she was back in the US visiting a relative who'd become ill. She asked Keith for more money to pay for her flights back to the UK. And that's when he started to get suspicious. She wouldn't accept Keith's offer to book the flights for her. And then she disappeared. To, to actually seemingly have, have met somebody who is going to be your ideal partner for the rest of your life... It's so, so difficult to then just shut that off, to switch it off, because you desperately, desperately want it to be real and not to have been a scam the whole way along. Romance scams are as ancient as the pursuit of love itself. But as more of us date online, scammers are becoming increasingly sophisticated in the techniques and the technology they use to exploit their victims and empty their bank accounts. In the last year, losses of almost 100 million were recorded, which is the highest figure ever. So the pandemic had a huge impact on this crime. Reporter Lizzie Chernick has been investigating these sorts of scams for The Guardian. And she says it's not just about the money the scammers take, but the psychological damage they cause too. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the dating fraudsters getting rich on lockdown loneliness. 
What kind of person were you looking for? Did you have an idea? I wanted someone to be loving, to to want to look after me in my later years, that I could come home to and say, how was your day? And for us to do things together. Carol Goodall's sitting next to me on a small grey sofa in her flat in West Sussex. On the wall are paintings of her two dogs. <laughs> They're both Staffordshire Bull Terriers. And the rest of the decoration is sparse, apart from a few crystal trinkets that are lined up on the TV stand. She's telling me why she gave online dating a go after her divorce. So who did you find? I found this guy. He told me his name was Gary. And we seemed to have so much in common, so much in common. I hadn't met him for about four weeks. I didn't want to rush into things. I wanted to take it easy. But when we actually met, he took me out for a meal and the conversation just didn't stop. What do you think it was about him that made you think, yeah, yeah, I think he's decent, I like him? I think it was just his manner, you know. He seemed such a gentleman and a gentleman. And I thought, oh, you don't find many of those around. Gary seemed a good fit. He was divorced too, and like Carol, he also had grown-up children. She works long hours at a care home, but he had his own business selling cars, and so he could set his own hours. It wouldn't be unusual for Carol to come in and find him waiting for her. I do 12-hour shifts till 8 o'clock at night, but he was always home and he was always cooking the meal, and I used to think, oh, this is really nice coming home to this. We used to sit up for hours just talking. You know, where should we go this weekend? Why don't I take you away? So we used to go away most weekends and it was just nice to get away from the normal mundane things and just relax. Well, it sounds like he was looking out for you and basically saying, yeah. this is your time, let's yeah. do something enjoyable. Yeah, definitely. And it was like we were meant to be together. And then it was, would you like to get married? And I'm thinking, whoa. How soon did that happen after you first started dating? In April. I actually met him on Boxing Day, so it wasn't much longer after that. And I said to him, I said, I'll, I'll have to think about it if that's all right. You know, I've not seen him for that long. And then I thought, well, you know, we get on well together. We like the same things. I'm not getting any younger. He's not getting any younger. Spoke to the kids. Well, yeah, if you're going to be happy, then, yeah, go for it. And had they met him by that point? They'd met him, yeah. And, and what they, did got they reckon on to him? They yeah. got on really well with him, really well. And then I thought, yeah, why not? After they decided to get married, Gary suggested that Carol sell her house so they could pool their resources and buy a bigger place together. Carol was still working long hours, so she asked Gary to handle the sale. The house went for around £200,000, which Gary said would go into their joint bank account, and Carol saw paperwork from a solicitor to back that up. They were ready to start their new life together, but just before the wedding... Gary announced that he couldn't get legally married yet because, he said, the paperwork from his divorce was still incomplete. In the end, they had a blessing instead. 
The bridesmaids looked absolutely beautiful. They all had their flowers. My son looked beautiful. I mean, he was giving me away. He was all done up in this nice tie and everything. Champagne, wine on the tables. How were you feeling at that point? I was feeling really good, thinking that I'm actually going to spend the rest of my days with this man that's looking after me so well. But after the honeymoon, Gary's behaviour started to change. Must have been about three weeks after I got a text one night and it said, won't be home this weekend, helping a friend move some vehicles. Came back on the Sunday night. Next weekend, he'd do it again. And this went on for about 10 months. And this pattern of going away at the weekends had only started after you'd had the blessing. Yeah. He'd never been like that before. No. No, never been like it at all. How was that making you feel? Used. My mind started racing over time. I kept thinking, oh, my God, you know, what if he's done this? What if he's done that? What if he's seen somebody else? Every, every sort of emotion and every thought had gone into my mind and I kept thinking, no, no, that that's not right. He, he's he's going to come home and he's going to be fine. He's doing this because he wants us to have a nice home and everything and that's why he's doing it. And that's what he told me. I'm doing this so we can have a nice home. But what, a part of you was clearly having doubts about that. A part of me was thinking it's not quite right. But I had no evidence until I got a text on my phone. And it was from a number. So I obviously didn't know this person. An unknown number. Yeah. And it said, whatever you and Gary are playing at, it's not very nice. So I rang this this number and I said, my name's Carol. I said, you've just left a message on my phone. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. And she said, are you with Gary? So I said, sorry? She said, are you with Gary? And I said, well, I'm with him, but not at the moment. He's not here. She said, yes, yeah, so am I. And that was it. It all started from there. Lizzie Chernick, you've written for The Guardian about the number of people getting caught in dating scams and how that's been rising during the pandemic when, I mean, online dating has been one of the only options for people who are single. How common have these scams become? They've really increased and become incredibly common. According to the latest information that's come out from Action Fraud, there were 8,863 cases reported to the National Fraud Intelligence Bureau between November 2020 and October 2021, which was up from 6,900 the previous year. Right. So it's gone up by about 2,000 more cases during the pandemic. Yeah, that's right. Action fraud actually believe the figure to be far higher because it's quite an underreported crime. And a lot of people never actually tell anybody that this has actually happened to them because people feel too embarrassed. Lizzie, you told me that action fraud has recorded almost £100 million lost to dating scams in the past year. How did the conditions of the COVID pandemic, the lockdowns, affect how prevalent these scams became? 
um, because it's been so difficult to meet people. Some people are actually using the internet for socializing for the first time as well. Obviously, it's increased loneliness, vulnerability for many people. That makes it more difficult to spot the dangers sometimes. Who are the scammers tending to go after then? Are there particular groups or profiles of people that they target? Well, according to the data from Action Fraud, people of all ages can be affected by this, as well as both sexes. Of the reports in the last 12 months, around 20% of the victims were aged 50 to 59, around 18% were in their 40s, um, and 17% of victims were 30 to 39 years old. Around half of the fraud victims were women, and just over a third, 39%, were men, and the rest haven't actually reported their gender. Okay. I mean, it's a fairly even split in terms of age, but not only people who are older. I mean, I know somebody in their 30s who this happened to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a risk for anyone at any age. Absolutely. Um, From speaking with experts, I'd say losses seem to be highest amongst older women because a widowed or divorced woman in her 60s is more likely to have assets and therefore potentially more money to lose. The phone call Carol made to the woman, to the unknown number, helped explain where Gary had been going all those weekends. We spent about two and a half hours on the phone. When he was going away at weekends, he was going away to see her and taking her away. He'd tried to get her to sell her property. It was near enough a mirror thing. What he told her, he told me. What he told me, he told her. And it was exactly the same. It's difficult to know how you would even understand that. I felt as sick as a dog. It was the most... uh, It was a horrible feeling. My stomach felt in knots because I kept thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? So she said, well, what should we do? And I said, "Um, well, I said, I know what I'm going to do. I said, I'm going to phone the police. So she said, so am I. The woman on the other end of the phone was called Sue. And for all the similarities in what they'd experienced with Gary, there was one big difference. Sue hadn't gone through with the sale of her house. Carol had. Where had her money, more than £200,000, gone? She remembered the solicitor whom Gary said he'd hired to handle the sale. I was telling the police officer and they said to me, there's no such person. And I thought, shit. There's no solicitor. No. I've lost my money. There was more she discovered. And one night I found this email saying, Hi, Gary and Rachel. And I'm thinking, who the bloody hell's Rachel? Thanks for letting me do the valuation on your property. What you should be left with is 525000 So he was Um, involved with another person as well. Yeah. So I took a a screenshot and I sent it over to my police officer. And I was getting to be quite a detective. Mm. Sue and I would phone each other up every night and we're saying, oh, well, I've done this today and I've done that today. And, oh, guess what I found out? And, And we were like that. We were being real little detectives. So I spoke to the policeman. He showed me these these documents. Gary had... 12 different names and three dates of birth. 
So they knew him already. He was already on a police yeah. watch he, list. Yeah. He had been to prison and he had told me that he went to prison, but he told me he went to prison for something completely different. What had he actually been to prison for? Doing exactly the same. He told you that his name was Gary. What's his actual name? Richard Charles Robinson. So you're facing this page full of information that tells you all the wrong that he's done. To women. And he was going up and down the country doing it. I phoned Sue up. She read it and she said, oh, my God, this man is a monster. And so at this point, he's got basically hundreds of thousands of pounds in his pocket. How does the police investigation progress from there? They, it, it was very, very slow. I mean, all in all, it took, I think it was about two and a half years because he went on the run. Did he find out that you knew what he'd done? Yeah, and then he went on the run. Yeah. The police eventually arrested Gary, or Richard, as they more accurately knew him, and they charged him with two counts of fraud. Carol decided not to go to his trial. I did want to go, but I didn't want to go. I wanted to see him being put away, but I didn't want to see his face. I think if I'd seen him, I think I would have just gone to pieces. What happened to Carol is even more confounding because of how much effort Gary, or Richard, put in to gain her trust. They knew each other in real life. They had what seemed like a real relationship. In her reporting, Lizzie Chernick also looked into romance scams that have happened purely online or over the phone, some of which have involved extremely sophisticated methods of deception. It's not necessarily even single people who are doing this to manipulate people. It can be entire gangs running sort of these criminal networks. That was the case for a lady called Anna, who I spoke to. That's not her real name, but she's a professional woman in her 50s. She joined the dating website Zusk in 2019. She'd been single for four years and she was ready to meet someone else. And she met somebody online and he claimed to be a Bulgarian food importer living in London. She had hours and hours on the phone with him. Um, She was absolutely smitten. She said that he showered her with love and affection. And it was a kind of love and affection she'd never, ever experienced before. And it was several weeks, about five or six weeks after they first made contact that he first asked to borrow money. Um, And it was a very small amount at first. It was just a little bit for port delivery charges. And at this time, she still thought he was this perfect man and she sort of felt bad for him. But this continued to escalate and he continued to ask for more and more money. As the man's requests for money increased, so too did the drama of the stories he told Anna. She'd sent him so much money for shipping charges, port charges, and he had told her that he had been taken hostage by loan sharks and he was being beaten. Yeah. Okay, so this story has got really wild. And she sent him how much money? £350,000. Which presumably was more than her life savings, right? I mean, she would have had to have sold stuff to have got that sort of money. Yeah, it was every penny she owned and she'd taken out loans. She told me that she was terrified of being responsible for his death at the hands of loan sharks. 
How did he make this seem legit? I mean, when he's asking for this money, is he saying pay it directly into my bank account or is there some extra level to the scam? No, absolutely not. She was checking that charges were legitimate and she was going to websites that had been designed and developed for the purpose of disguising the real purpose of where this money was going to. So, for example, when he claimed that his daughter had died and she wanted to support with the funeral costs, he sent her a website to the actual funeral place and she was sending the money there. She wasn't sending the money directly to his bank account. There's just so many complex ways to deceive people now. It's almost as if technology has moved faster than, than we have, in a sense. And that means that if scammers are able to use that to their advantage, it's very difficult sometimes for people to see through some of those scams, whether that be a romantic fraud or any other kind of fraud. But the scammers didn't only create fake websites. They did have video calls as well, and they were very short video calls for the most part. Um, But she was actually told later that people can now superimpose moving images onto video. It turned out to be an image of a Mexican actor. Wow. Um, Yeah, so it was. he's a complete fabrication. He's just a character created by what is likely to be a criminal gang. But even then, he had excuses for her. Even then, she couldn't fully untangle herself. It wasn't until a few months later that she eventually was able to sever tires with him completely. And she said the impacts were absolutely devastating. It was like losing a husband, um, you know, losing the love of her life. But at the same time, None of it was real. Lizzie, what happened to Anna is so frustrating because she did try to use good judgment. She looked at where she was sending her money. She checked and these businesses seemed real. She had video calls with a person who, again, seemed to exist and she fell for it. What did you learn in your reporting about the psychology of these scams? There's not many people, I don't think, who can say hand on heart that they've always made good decisions in love. Mm. It might be texting someone who isn't interested or ignoring the signs of cheating. There's all sorts of ways we can succumb to this. And romance fraud is really just, it's a more extreme form of some of these things that we've all experienced. So yeah, in terms of the psychology of how people get involved, it's actually just a more extreme form of betrayal blindness where you don't see the betrayal that's happening to you. So it could be that we're not seeing a partner cheating on us, even though all the signs are there. It's when we we attach ourselves to an idea of someone or a fantasy of someone, and we're either not seeing or not engaging with the seeing of it. And it's easy to understand how online dating leads to... Almost you creating a fantasy of who that person might be or who you might want them to be. I mean, you know, when you start dating someone through an app or online, you can glean these little bits of information from them by looking at their profile pictures, by seeing what they write about themselves, by reading into the messages that they send and maybe even project an idea onto them of of who you want them to be by maybe filling in the details that you don't know. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think there's there's an element of fantasy that's involved. And Anna, she described it as like being in a love bubble. It was like she was immersed in candy floss. And there's certainly an element of wanting to be swept away with that because who doesn't want to be swept away by a fairy tale? But there'll be people listening to this who think, well, 
I feel sorry for these victims, but also they've been foolish. How could they be so foolish as to fall for this? I think that's very common attitude. And I think victim blaming in general is very common across society. I think one of the big things is that society has a huge stigma around single life and loneliness. So on the one hand, you have this societal obsession with finding the one and finding true love. Um, And from my own experiences, I can say society definitely treats you differently when you're in a relationship to when you're single. Mm. And I think it's really important, actually, that as a society, we move away from this world that's so couple-centric and try to build more spaces for people to combat loneliness. Keith, who I know you've spoken to, has set up a group called Goodbye Lonely, which is to try and um, unite people who are feeling lonely lonely. And I think it's really important that as a society, we try to build more spaces for people to combat loneliness. Because if people did have those spaces to engage with others and build new friendships, we'd see a reduction in the number of people feeling very vulnerable and perhaps desperate for a relationship. And I think that's why people find it so hard to confess to romance mm. thoughts, because they feel as though they'll be judged for being weak or silly. And you've spoken about these as in a sense, being, you know, forms of abusive relationships, is it helpful to kind of frame it in our minds as as a form of grooming? I mean, that way of earning somebody's trust over time, using a soft approach, you know, finding out what they're interested in and really manipulating them to seeing you as a kindly person. Yeah, absolutely. And for whatever reason, they fall victim to this it's always going to be abusive. It's a very, very complex form of emotional abuse. And I think that's what people need to understand. It must just be an unbelievable thing to try and cope with. Yeah, it's an incredibly hard thing to come to terms with. And um, the uh, trauma therapist I spoke to for the article, um, Olivia James, she told me that, you know, it causes a form of PTSD in a lot of people and it can trigger um, severe and mental health problems it's like a double whammy you know you've been robbed and you've had your heart broken at the same time it's like it's how much can one human take after the break the outcome of gary's case and what's happened to carol's life since Carol was heartbroken. Richard Robinson, or Gary, was eventually sentenced to 10 years in jail. The judge in the case said Carol would probably never get her money back. My life is over. I I get up, I go to work, I come home, I go to bed, I get up, I go to work, I come home, I go to bed, and this is what it's like all the time. In three weeks, I've had three days off and doing 12-hour shifts. I hardly ever go out because I can't afford to go out. He left me in £10,000 worth of debt, saying that he'd paid bills and he hadn't, but he'd put everything in my name. Even now, I've had letters today, you haven't paid your council tax this month. Yeah, I know. I'm cut off on my phone because I haven't paid my phone bill. I know. How can I pay it if I haven't got the money? It's difficult. Do I 
put £80 worth of petrol in my car or do I buy food? And that's the situation. Look, at, look yeah. in my fridge. I've got no food in there. People at work have to give me food so I can live. Sorry. I could need losing weight anyway. <laughs> but that that's the situation that this man left you in. You know, you'd got to a point in your life where you'd brought up two children who were doing well. You'd got your own house. You'd managed to get enough savings that you could say, look, set yourselves up. And you were just trying to look forward to enjoying the rest of your life yeah. that you'd been working so hard for, yeah. like 12 hours a day for. To to comprehend all of that being taken away from you is, I mean, it's quite it's quite an incredible thing to, it's, to try and imagine. It's almost not believable. Up until three months ago, two and a half months ago, I was sitting on the floor because I didn't have this. I had to save up for this. For this sofa? Yeah. I was sleeping on the floor on a mattress. I've tried as best as I can to make myself another home. But I just want... I just want my money back. He's not only taken money. No, he's taken trust from me. He's taken love from me because I've had friends that wanted to get into relationships. I can't do it. You just won't date again? No. I do not trust anybody because I cannot be broken anymore. So I'll be on my own. That was Carol Goodall. Thank you to her and to Keith Grinstead for talking to us for this episode. We really appreciate it. You can read Lizzie Chernick's article on this at theguardian.com. If you're worried you might have fallen for a financial scam, the first thing you should do is contact your bank and then report it to Action Fraud. Their website is actionfraud.police.uk and their phone number 0300 123-2040. Today's episode was produced by Rose De Rabiti and sound designed by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Maithili Rao and Phil Maynard. Just before we go, I want to mention a new Guardian podcast that's just launched. It's called Weekend and it features celebrity interviews and lifestyle features. You'll be able to listen to a new episode every Saturday. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.